Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. This episode's feature release is Moonlight Rises by Vincent Zandri. Dick Moonlight is dead for real this time. Thanks to a trio of masked thugs in a dark downtown Albany alley, he's purchased a one-way ticket to the pearly gates. That is, until he feels his floating spirit painfully pulled back into his bruised but breathing body. And that's when the trouble starts. A private detective with a short-term memory problem, Moonlight still knows he's in danger. Now he just needs to figure out why. Moonlight's latest client, Peter Check, is a handicapped nuclear engineer with a mysterious Russian heritage. Check had something, a box, and the gang who tried to take Moonlight out believes he has it and is willing to do anything to get it back. Problem is, Moonlight doesn't recall Check giving him a box. Of course, that doesn't mean he doesn't have it. He just better figure out where it is before he winds up dead for real this time. Moonlight Rises by Vincent Zandri is available from your favorite bookseller and online marketplaces. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season two. This season contains adaptations of stories published in the 1800s. These stories are some of the first considered to be mysteries. For that reason, this season is called The Originators. Today's story is about greed, blindness, and loyalty. This is episode seven, In Plain Sight, an adaptation of A Strange Disappearance by Anna Catherine Green. A quick word about episode numbering. The two previous were said to be 5A and 5B, but technology really didn't like the A's and B's, and so it turned into episode 5 and 6. Hence, this is episode 7. Hope you enjoy. Alright, so let's talk a little bit about this book. So Anna Catherine Green's second book in the Mr. Gray series, it was published in 1880 and is set in New York City. The version I had put the Blake Mansion on a corner property facing 2nd Avenue. The cross street wasn't specified in the story. Google dropped the pin near East 65th Street, and so we're just going to go with that. The Blake Mansion is a mere six and a half hours from the Royal Observatory in England, with non-stop flights between JFK and Heathrow. You can get between 2nd Avenue and, oops, sorry, forgot a paragraph break there. You can get between 2nd Avenue and Centobia, Mississippi, which was the location of our second episode, in about five hours by flying to Memphis and then taking the short drive south. Drive the entire way and it's about 17 hours. And it takes about the same amount of time to get from New York City to Hannibal, Missouri, which is where Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer started out in episode four. So today's story is set in winter. There isn't any mention of holidays or the new year, so it makes me think that we're in February. New York gains an hour of daylight over the short month, and sunrise is between 7 a.m. and 6.30, and sunset is between 5.15 and 5.45. The original story, A Strange Disappearance, has 346 reviews and ratings on Goodreads, with an average of 3.46, 45% rated at a 3, and 30% rated at a 4. So here's a few reviews. Here's a five-star review. I really, really, really like this author. Yet another story that had me on the edge of my seat, turning the pages and reveling in the twists and turns come up at the end. Uh, I'm not sure if that was their error or mine. Love this book. Well done, Anna Green. So here's an excerpt from a three-star review. I was a little disappointed by this after enjoying the Leavenworth case so much. A.K. Green is hailed as the mother of modern crime fiction, but it didn't take me long to work out what was going on here. 
added to this, I was disappointed to find that police inspector Ebenezer Grice, the Sherlock Holmes of his times, hardly appeared, leaving the detective work to his assistant, Q. And the main female character was so wishy-washy, unassuming and saintly that I wanted to shake her. But I do appreciate that I was looking at her not with an 1880s glance, but with 21st century eyes. You know, I'm not sure which female that the reviewer was talking about. Um, I didn't find any of them really wishy-washy. So, but we do have to make sure that we realize we're reading 1800s work with 21st century eyes. Jack, you want to tell us a little about Anna Catherine Green? Why not? Everybody wants to know. Anna Catherine Green was an American novelist, and by many accounts, is the mother of mystery. Her first Mr. Grice novel, The Leavenworth Case, published in 1878, was the first legal thriller and brought her the most fame. Isn't that kind of cool to think of? Like, she wrote the very first legal thriller? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, that was just You can share comment. with the whole class. That was just my comment. Yeah. Huh? Over her 45-year career, she published over 36 novels and also wrote poetry. Michael Mallory uh, profiled her in Mystery Scene magazine, and a link to the article is in the show notes, I guess, if you have the energy. Anna was born in Brooklyn, New York, and was the daughter of a prominent lawyer. She graduated from Ripley Female College, which is now Green Mountain College, in Pulteney, Vermont in 1866. This was at the time when it was still rare for women to go to college, and Anna learned something about law from her father and used it to create Mr. Grice, her detective, and the case he solved. Her books were cutting edge for their plots and their incorporation of realistic legal circumstances. A number of sources thought Anna's work hasn't had the lasting power of Poe and Collins, which is the two other authors we featured in this season, because she incorporated really Victorian elements that made uh, her stories feel dated. I think we saw that in some of the that three-star reviewer where the reviewer wanted to shake the, shake the characters. All right, so we're nearly ready to begin. While Jack resets his microphone and warms up his fingers, I'll explain why we're doing adaptations of these early stories instead of performing them as written. Two main reasons. The language from the 1800s is hard. The commas alone routinely have me reaching for a nice Moscato. I definitely cannot read them after I've had espresso. Second, the style and length of the stories were created not for listening, but for reading. With these adaptations, we work hard to keep the heart of the story, preserving the groundbreaking narrative that created a genre, but update the packaging for easier digestion. Character names are in the show notes. And so now we are ready for In Plain Sight. Jack, you want to lead us in? Chapter 1, A Locked Room The corner home was worth stopping for a second look. Four stories tall, it stood on the corner like a grand lady accepting the attention of those going by as her due. She faced 2nd Avenue, with the fence running along the side of 65th Street. The fence and the gate were taller than a man and as unwelcoming as it was ornate. Using a key, the housekeeper, Mrs. Daniels, opened the gate and led us through the rear yard. I stand by what I said. Letty would not have left the house, not voluntarily, not in the middle of the night, and not without telling me. She gave me that look old women acquired through experience, the one that made you feel like a naughty boy of 12 instead of a police detective of 22. Likely she saw 22 and 12 as one and the same, as she was hoping my superior, Mr. Grice, would be accompanying her. This girl, I said, Letty, she has been with you for a year as a seamstress? Eleven months, she corrected. She never goes out. Socially, I mean. She will, of course, run errands if needed. She never has guests. The grounds were well cared for, making the construction equipment look that much more out of place. A 40-foot ladder leaned against a newly constructed wing. Stone was mounded neatly, organized in stacks by shapes and sizes. 
In this way, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Thomas Quinn, I said. The fourth of seven children of a blacksmith, I grew up as Tommy. Here in New York, I was Quinn. This is Officer Bradshaw, I said. She dismissed the man I brought with me, picking up where she left off. As I was saying, Mr. Quinn, Letty is the most excellent girl and a very dear to my heart. Mrs. Daniels opened the rear door and ushered my colleague and I in. She led us directly to the rear stairs and began to climb. The master of the house mustn't learn of this, she warned suddenly. Curious, I didn't leave the matter rest. Is he so disturbed by the events that he is despondent? Oh, no, she said. Mr. Blake does not involve himself with the staff. He leaves it to me, having no interest in the day-to-day of managing the household. Going in the back, we aren't in any danger of meeting him that way. She spoke the truth, I thought, but I suspected it was not the whole truth. Former Congressman Holman Blake was the last in an esteemed New York family. If we had royalty, he would have worn a crown. The Blakes were filthy rich and had reputations for being mad as hatters. His father was famous for hoarding books. His uncle was so offended by fish, his hosts removed it from their dinner menus. The inside of the mansion was more impressive than the out. In this line of work, I've been in many fine New York homes. This one was older, larger, and more refined. We followed Mrs. Daniels to the third floor. The room with the line of windows overlooking the backyard was flush with sunlight. While this was the room of a seamstress, this was not the room of a working girl. Though the furnishings were simple, they were elegant. This was the room of a lady. And, as on the mantel sat two books, one of Shakespeare and one of history, an educated lady. This is the way I found it this morning, Mrs. Daniels said. I heard men's voices coming from her room last night. I knocked on her door, asked if there was someone in there with her. She said it was the neighbors. We hear them sometimes, so I thought nothing of it and I went back to bed. This morning she didn't answer the door. It was locked. I had to use the passage between our rooms to enter. The room told of violence. A chair was upside down, one leg broken. A curtain hung lopsided down a window, the rod torn from the wall, the curtain torn. What time had you spoken to her, I asked. 12.30, she said. They had to enter through here. Mrs. Daniels pointed to the window overlooking the second-story room. Beyond her finger, the workman's ladder rose above the nearly finished wing. I pushed the window open and made my first discovery. On the white windowsill was a distinct drop of dried blood. Out the window I picked up the trail. Drops marked the path across the slate roof to the ladder. I would not have thought a woman could descend from such a height, but evidence said otherwise. I climbed back in the window and began examining the floor. My search was complicated by the muted colors of the rug, too many of which looked like blood. Near the wall, close to a narrow writing desk, I found overlapping drops of blood. Under the desk sat a pen knife with a bloody smudge of a finger. This was the start. No splatter was evident, an indication of a knife being used to slash or stab. It seemed to me that the young woman, Letty, had been backed up against this wall. She took the pen knife from her desk, but instead of using the weapon on her assailers, she cut her own skin, standing still such that the blood dripped into a pool on the edge of the carpet. Curious. I looked to my colleague. Bradshaw, fetch Mr. Grice. Chapter 2, The Gentleman of the House One of the maids, Fanny, stood before Grice and I, giving a description of the missing girl. She was a pretty thing, Fanny was. The girl, Letty, was pretty enough, too. Her hair was black as night, Fanny said. It matched her eyes. She was tall, a bit less than you, and she was uncommonly white. It was as if the good Lord forgot to color her in. And what of her shape, I asked. Fanny smiled slyly. Straight. She lacked in curves. She wasn't sickly, Mrs. Dan- Daniel said, dismissing Fanny. She ate regularly enough. The meat just didn't stick to her bones. Grice put Mrs. Daniel through his paces, asking about Letty's background, references, and the like. Surprisingly, Mrs. Daniels didn't share many answers. Oh, she knew the answers, to be sure. She wasn't sharing which made no sense for the one who put the appearances of 
being so desperate to find the missing girl. Grace chided her. We can only take this as far as you are willing to talk to us. Mrs. Daniel bowed her head, appearing apologetic, but did not offer more information. Grace turned away as though he didn't expect her to respond. He inspected again the blood stains in the window. He crouched low below the dressing table, searching the carpet again. Letty had black hair, Grice asked. Mrs. Daniels nodded, her gaze shifting to the corner of the room. Then a well of fire bubbled up and she said, You have to find her! Her eyes snapped back to my superior. Something awful will happen to her if you don't. The woman was flipping between heads and tails by the second. Grice nodded and asked to see the rest of the house. To my surprise, Mrs. Daniels agreed, expected her to shut us out. Grace and I divided up. I searched the library, the parlor, and the billiard room. I found nothing, nothing out of place, nothing missing, nothing broken. I was met up with Grice as he was leaving Mr. Blake's private room. His eyes were lit and one side of his mouth was curled up. He'd found something. What is it? I asked. He shook his head slowly, not denying that he had found some clue. He was challenging me to find it myself. This was the annoying part of working for a brilliant man. Pushing open the ornate door, I found myself in a simple room. Where the rest of the house was dressed in New York money, this room was devoid of most comforts. Even the floor was bare. The large desk held in neat piles of paper. Bookshelves were only half full. The only decorative decorative piece in the room was a life-size painting of a woman. She was beautiful, with pale skin and dark hair piled atop her head. The dress was expensive, coordinated with sapphires that adorned her throat. The portrait was in a gilded frame, thick and wide, and sat out away from the wall. After several reviews, I found nothing more. I rejoined Grice, wondering what he saw. I wasn't going to ask, because he wouldn't tell me if I did. Grice knew it would annoy me and took enjoyment in my discomfort. I took away my annoyance and returned to the hallway, determined to act as though my curiosity was satisfied. Just as I closed the door behind me, the front door opened, and a well-dressed gentleman in a heavy coat entered. Mrs. Daniels hurried to the man, Mr. Holman Blake, and babbled an explanation of our presence. I told you this morning, Mr. Blake, about the girl that is missing. Right, Blake said to her, then turned to Grice. Mrs. Daniels is in charge of the staff. She'll give you whatever it is you need. He began to walk away, but Grice stopped him with a line of questions. Blake answered directly, but provided no information. He couldn't place the woman described. He didn't know her name. He didn't know which room was hers. He stood now in the third floor room with Grice and Mrs. Daniels, and it was clear it was the first time he'd been there. Mr. Blake was not a heartless, unfeeling aristocratic, determined to protect his family name from scandal. No, in fact, the attitude that radiated from him said he was impervious to scandal. So far above it, he likely wouldn't notice. Mr. Blake was distracted. By what, I don't know. He was attentive, as Grace pointed out, bloodstains, and obviously distraught. Did the girl take anything with her? Blake asked, looking around the temple room. Her shawl and cloak, Mrs. Daniels said, and two trinkets from her dresser. My head came up at the new information. What were the trinkets? Mrs. Daniels flipped to tails again, tucking away what she knew. It isn't relevant to her disappearance, she said. If it were, I would tell you immediately. I doubted that. Grace had begun opening the drawers of the dresser, examining the contents. When Mrs. Daniels squawked like a seagull, Stop! Those are a woman's intimate things! She bodily inserted herself between Grice and the bottom drawer. You are husbands, fathers, and gentlemen. I call upon you to act as such. Grice glanced at me and then acquiesced. If there is nothing else, Blake said, I will leave you to your duties. Let Mrs. Daniels know what you need. I hope you find the girl before misfortune finds her. He looked around the room again. More misfortune, he amended. Blake left the room with Mrs. Daniels in his wake. Grice immediately opened the drawers Mrs. Daniels had been guarding. In it, he found an excellent silk dress with a white lace collar and a bouquet of dried red roses. The woman, he said, was more than a seamstress. Exhausting our search, Grice and I returned to the precinct. What do you think of our case, he asked me. It's not as simple as a missing seamstress, I said cautiously. Grice was genuine in his interest of my opinion. He had frequently asked for it over the six months I had worked under him. He does, though, have that touch of arrogance that brilliant men do. It was not to my advantage to be overly confident. 
I completely agree, Quinn. This is not a simple case. What informed your opinion? The state of the room, I said, and the blood, of course, indicating her exodus was not voluntary. The use of the ladder indicated she was avoiding being seen. She had been there for nearly a year. If she wished to leave the position, she would have packed and left through the door during the day. It is possible, I suppose, that she was effectively hiding in Mr. Blake's house. As you said yourself, she was more than a seamstress. Perhaps whatever she hid from found her. Maybe, Grace said, himself thinking. Mrs. Daniels was of two minds. One absolutely wants to find this girl. The other is protecting someone. Mr. Blake, I guessed. The key is in that household, Grace said. We need to know more. Here is what you're going to do. Chapter 3, A Walk on the Wrong Side That same day, I took a room in a house across from the Blake Mansion. I posed as an unemployed clerk who spent his days searching for employment. I charmed the landlady until I was in possession of a second-floor room overlooking 2nd Avenue. From my window, I could watch the comings and goings of Mr. Blake and his household. Mrs. Daniel was frequently in the windows, staring down the street as if by will alone she could make the girl return. She remained adamant that Letty would not disappear without a word to her. At Bryce's suggestion, she placed an ad imploring Letty to contact her. Mrs. Daniels complied, giving us two weeks before she would, quote, take actions of her own. Of course, she refused to tell us what that meant. I struck up an acquaintance with the maid, Fanny. She was a wealth of information on the inner workings of the household and a diversion from the tedious nature of my assignment. Blake, it seemed, only shared his company with men of similar political leaning. When he accepted invitations, he went alone. When he hosted, it was rare for a woman to attend. That evening, Blake would be attending a reception. I decided to do the same. The event was a charity one, drawing New Yorkers of all walks of life. I blended in, but it was unnecessary. Blake saw only those men he knew. Everyone else was as noticed as the room's decor. I mentioned Blake saw only men, and I was being literal. For a rich man of marrying age, he did not have a swell of single women around him. He had no interest, I determined, being as he did not, even once, let his eye follow a feminine figure. Until, that is, a particular woman arrived. She was the one in the portrait in his office. It was obvious they were acquainted and equally obvious that their relationship was strained. They spoke in hushed tones, which I could hear from my post behind a long drape. I cut a slit in the fabric, pulling it wide to watch. What happened, happened, Blake said. Neither of us wished it. We both did what we felt we had to do. What we had to do, the woman echoed. Disavowing me was what you had to do? You understood what I was facing, he said, his voice turning sharp. I had no choice. Can you stay the, say the same? Oh, her face lit with anger. I expected her to slap his face, but she was too much of a lady. You embody wealth and power, she said. I never had a choice. If you thought I did, you were a fool. Blake's temper ignited. His chest rose and fell as he gained control. I have no wish to rehash an old fight, reopen old wounds, he said eventually. His entire body emanated sorrow and regret. I apologize for my actions. I never wanted to hurt you. Forgive me and let me go. She was touched by the soliloquy. I forgive you, she said in a soft voice. But she never finished that sentence. It was clear to Blake and to me that she would not release him. Blake left shortly after that, going directly home. The following day, Blake left the house after lunch. I followed. He left the streets of his home, going to neighborhoods inhabited by drunk men and their kin. Although he was a former congressman, Blake was hardly more than a decade older than myself. He was strong and fit. He went into these dangerous areas with chin held high. I wondered if he had a pistol in his coat to back his attitude. He spoke to women, and women only. The Holman Blake I met had been confident, elite. The one I followed home that night had a heavy head. I made my report to Grice by letter, staying in my window the next morning. Mrs. Daniels had gone out and returned. 
After lunch, Blake went out again. Luca followed him, this time to a different neighborhood, yet equally low to the previous day. Again, he spoke only to women. Yet he wasn't friendly. The look on his face was focused. He seemed unaware of the noise and controlled chaos that bubbled around him. He stopped a girl then. She was likely the daughter of a drunkard, a teenage girl with woefully few clothes on given the month. Her hair was her treasure. It was red gold, shining in the sunlight despite its filth. Blake spoke with her for several moments. She wasn't afraid of him. She listened, responded to the negative, and then went on her way. I abandoned Blake for this girl. She wore a calico dress and a plain shawl. She hurried through the street as if she knew I followed. Not once did she glance over her shoulder, but her route was impossible to anticipate. I couldn't. The world was tossed. Without warning, the sky was below me and the girl was a blur. Two boys had tumbled out of a door, taking me down as they rolled into the street. Without a word of apology, they were up and running while I was sprawled. I re regained my feet as quickly as I could, running to where I had last seen the girl. That alley ended at a fence, and tangled there was a bit of her dress. The piece went into my billfold, and I returned to the rooming house. That evening, Fanny and I passed the time. She shared that Blake was taking a trip the next morning. He planned on taking the first train out of New York, but she didn't know to where. The following morning, I was a young drummer, waiting in line behind Mr. Blake, who coincidentally was going to Putney, Vermont. Chapter 4, Middle of Nowhere, Vermont Following Holman Blake was both easy and hard. Easy because his means of travel didn't provide a lot of options. Train from New York to Putney, stage from Putney to Melville, horse, horseback from there. It was hard because as the size of the transportation decreased, there was nowhere to hide. Blake's own nature worked in my favor. Though he looked me square in the eye across the hotel dining room, he made no connection to the detective that had stood in his home only days before. I doubt the man saw anyone in the train car, in the dining room, or on that stage. Blake did not appear worried or particularly in a hurry. He simply moved from one point to another. Maybe it was nothing more than the experience of a man used to traveling. Taking precautions, I left the hotel before him. The landlord mistook me for another, a man going to Perry. I did not correct his mistake, riding the rented horse out on the only road east. And then I had a problem. The road split and I didn't know which to take. As I considered the dilemma, Blake approached me. He drew his horse to a halt at my signal. Good morning, friend, I said. This is embarrassing, but I can't recall if the hotel manager said the right or left road goes to Perry. Blake pointed to the left. I know this does not go to Perry. Good travels to you, he said, then proceeded to the left. And my dilemma grew. He knew I was heading to Perry, which meant I couldn't take the branch to the left. I rode to the right for ten minutes before racing back and taking the left. The mare, oh, she was a good sport about racing up the crests, only to wait until Blake disappeared over the next ridge. We continued this way for three, maybe four miles, before a cluster of buildings appeared in the basin. It was too small to be called a town, but I will admit to being relieved to see the spot in the middle of nowhere. Blake was descending the hill. He drew up, stopped, all the time watching the buildings. He withdrew a pistol from his coat and checked that it was loaded. For a moment I expected him to turn towards me, but he didn't. He urged the horse forward. Pulling my mare behind brush, I tied her off and then hurried down the hill while keeping Blake in sight. He went to a large house that looked abandoned. His knock on the front door went unanswered. He circled, trying the rear door to no result. I expected him to break into the house, but he didn't. Climbing back on the horse, he headed back up the road to Melville. Once he passed out of sight, I hurried down to the house. Like Blake, I tested the doors and they held firm. A noise had me looking over my shoulder. Two children were walking, carrying school, school books. Whoa there, I called. Do you know who lives here? The girl pulled at the boy's hand, but he stayed. No one anymore, he said. That was where them two who robbed the Runyard Bank lived. The girl pulled again, and this time the boy went. This boarded up wreck of a house was the home of the Schoenmakers. The 
father and son pair had robbed Runyard Bank some months ago. They were caught, tried, and sent to prison. They broke out a few weeks ago. There was a handsome reward poster for their return. What was Holman Blake doing here, and how was he connected to the pair? The tree climbing skills developed in my youth got me into the house through a broken window on the second floor. I landed on glass in a room that was otherwise empty. Flattening myself against the wall, I readied my pistol. I stayed still, catching my breath, and listening for any sound that indicated I had company. The house was more than quiet. It was silent. Out the window, the tree looked farther away and more delicate than it had from the ground. It may have been my way in, but I needed to find another way out. With no choice but to go forward, I began my search. This, room had four, this floor had four rooms, each of which was bare, except for the wood frame of a bed. The largest had a four-poster bed with emerald green curtains, now heavy with grime. A floor down and more bedrooms. These included some simple furnishings in addition to the beds. One room in particular had the feel of being used. It was dark, the windows draped with blankets and coats. Stripping them away, I found curtains beneath. Pushing them wide, light poured in. There was nothing of note. I left the room, noticing a crude red cross marked on the wood floor. I'm sorry, on the wood door. It was oddly placed and invisible without the sunlight. I looked across and down the hall at the doors. None other had the mark. Going to the main floor, I found what once had been called a parlor. This was not a home as much as it was an old inn with ten rooms. Yet the boys and the Schoenmachers had lived here. In the kitchen, I went to the window, relieved when it opened. I had my way out. Feeling easier, I searched the cupboards and, had, and the pantry. Partially used lard and flour, a glass canister of dried beans. I opened the grate of the potbelly stove. Instead of ash, I pulled out partially burnt cloth, prison clothes. My heart pumped like a racehorse. The Schoenmachers had been here recently. A soft ting pulled my attention to the floor. A ring sat between my boots. Soot brushed away, I held the steel ring with a simple design. Clutching the ring, I remember the story of the Schoenmacher taking a man hostage during their escape. He was found drowned on the edge of a river, his wedding ring and watch missing. I had mine to leave, but there was still the cellar. I scraped up a candle with enough wick to light. Pistol in one hand, I sank gently down the steps. At the bottom, I circled until I was convinced I was alone. And I was, next to a three-foot-deep hole. Whatever had been in that hole was long gone. I had to get back to New York now. I had been following a bee and found myself in a hornet's nest. Chapter 5, The Girl in the Calico Dress The following day was spent with Grice and the superintendent repeating my findings in that tiny Vermont town. Immediately, two men were dispatched to the north to find the Schoenmakers and telegrams were sent to vicinity police departments. With nothing to do but wait, Grice turned his mind back to our mystery. As hard as we tried, we could come up with no innocent explanation for blank to track to the Schoenmacher home. Our hypothesizing was interrupted by a note to Grice. He read, then lifted his eyes to me. A woman is washed up on the shores of the Hudson, he said. We need to go to the morgue. Winter seemed especially cold in the stone and tile morgue. The coroner's assistant escorted us to a table with a white cloth draped over a body. Grace nodded and I pulled back the sheet. The features of the woman's face were obscured by the damage caused by her killer and the water. Long locks of reddish gold hair fanned the table below her. I glanced at the report, glad for the excuse to look away from the poor, for, from the poor creature. She's five foot eight, 115 pounds. The time of death is between 12 and 36 hours ago. Grice grunted. The cold slowed nature's work, he said. I've seen her before, I said, pulling out my billfold. Her dress. This is the woman I saw Blake talking to. Her dress snagged on a fence and tore. I laid my sample against her stomach. It matched. Poor wretch, I said. At least it wasn't our black-haired girl. Don't be too sure, Grace said, pulling the coroner's note from his pocket. Read my original posting. I opened the note. Be on the lookout for a young woman, 18 to 22, tall, pale complexion, thin, with red-gold hair. If found, contact G immediately. 
I looked at Grice. Why the hair? Fanny and Mrs. Daniels said she had black hair. They did, he said, and he gave me one of those smiles I hated to see. But the brush on her dressing table and the hair on the floor beneath were red gold. What they saw was a wig. I venture Mrs. Daniels knew. He pulled the drape back over the girl. It is time for Mr. Mrs. Daniels and Mr. Blake to talk to us. Chapter 6. A Private Affair Blake was entertaining that evening. Declining to return tomorrow, Grace and I were shown to a comfortable parlor to wait. Blake was informed we waited and sent in a carafe of wine. I was grateful, but Grace shook his head. We'll need our heads about us. We heard the voices of men, deep baritones talking and laughing over dinner. We listened as they paraded past our door and then to the robust discussion of state, local, and federal politics. We waited until the evening had run its course. Then Blake entered the room. My apologies, gentlemen. Obviously, I have been engaged. What is this about? I looked at Grice, astounded. Blake had no memory of us. Grice didn't miss a beat. We've met before, Mr. Blake, here in your house. Mr. Quinn and I are investigating the disappearance of your seamstress, Letty. Ah, yes, he said, making the connection and then frowning. What brings you to my door at this time of night? Several items need to be cleared up, and only you can do it, Grice said. You told us you didn't know the girl, didn't remember her. Sir, that was a lie. The hell it was, Blake said, standing straighter. I told you I put the running of the house in the hands of Mrs. Daniels. I may have seen the girl, but she didn't make an impression on me. If you'll indulge me, Mr. Grice, I can prove otherwise. Oops, I'm sorry. If you indulge me, Grice said, I can prove otherwise. More curious than angry, Blake indulged us. Grice led the way to Blake's private room to the portrait of the lady I saw him argue with. That's my cousin, the Countess de Mirac, Blake said. And this, Grice asked, swinging the portrait on hidden hinges to reveal an ethereal woman in a blue silk gown with red gold hair. In her hand was a bouquet of roses. She, Blake spat angrily, his cheeks flushing red, has nothing to do with the missing seamstress. She, Grace countered, Grace countered much more elegantly, is the missing seamstress. Blake narrowed his eyes, trying to digest what Grace said. Impossible. Mrs. Daniels, he bellowed the housekeeper's name until Fanny came running into the room. Mrs. Daniels is out, sir. She's usually back by 10. Is there something I can do for you? I thought Fanny very brave to stand there under her employer's glare. No, he said sharply. Tell her I want to see her immediately. Then he turned back to Grace and I. What makes you think this woman is a seamstress? Let's go to her room and I'll show you. Grace led the way. We walked in a silent parade up the stairs and into the bedroom. I lit the lamps until the room was fully illuminated. Grace went to the dresser and pulled open the bottom drawer. He withdrew the pale blue dress that was identical to the one in the painting. Blake went to the drawer, falling on his knees. But, but how? That is our question, Mr. Blake. Grace informed Blake that the girl was now in the morgue. Blake looked a wreck. No, he said, his voice breaking. It can't be true. It is the time for truth, Grace said softly. It's too late to save her, but we can still help her. Blake sat on the floor, no longer looking like a rich man, like an accomplished politician, but like a man who'd had his heart torn out. I'm not proud of my story, Mr. Grace. I haven't told anyone. Maybe if I had, she would have... He drifted off. The woman in the portrait is my wife. His story was a tragedy. Blake's father promised to give him the world if the son lived by a few rules which centered on protecting the family. Blake fell in love with his cousin, the dark-haired Evelyn Blake. That was like a thing at the time, don't get freaked out. The pairing crossed the line, though, with his ailing father, who obviously knew that it was crossing the line. The younger Blake was given one month to marry any respectable woman except the one he loved. Mary or the family fortune would be otherwise distributed. Two years prior, Blake found himself stranded in rural Vermont at night with a storm coming in. Luck was on his side when he came across a small town with an inn. Run by a father, his son and daughter, Blake took a room. The men were big brutes who asked too many questions. The daughter was a true beauty with long red-gold braids. In his room, Blake found himself on edge. He removed his 
cash roll from his breast pocket and hid it in his greatcoat. In bed, fully dressed, a storm raging outside, Blake couldn't settle. The daughter, Lutra, snuck into his room and all but shoved him out the door. She was afraid for his life. Instinct had him going with her. In the parlor, her brother blocked the door. Her father blocked their retreat. She was a magnificent woman, Blake said, ordering the men out of our way. They didn't listen. Her brother moved to hurt her. I defended her, putting her brother on the floor. Her father came at us. She stopped him by holding up my bankroll, threatening to burn the lot. She set one bill to fire, proving our determination. Lutra bought our escape with the promise of returning tomorrow with the money. She knew her father and brother would come after us, and she was ready for it. Lutra hooked a lantern on my horse and sent her into the storm. Her kin followed the horse. She led me on foot the opposite direction, along a narrow road atop a ravine. It was a long, muddy trip. As the storm ebbed, we reached a cabin where a kind couple sheltered us. The next morning, I found Lutra reading a book. She shared her intention never to return to her father's house. She said she was born into a hard life, but she was not born a criminal. She knew her father and brother stole from guests, but that night, they intended to beat me senseless, rob me, and send me and my horse over the ravine. She couldn't let it happen. She didn't ask anything from me, not a single dollar. Blake honored the young woman's bravery by paying for an education, three years at a school where Blake knew the headmistress. For his part, he said, he'd done little more than write checks, consumed as he was with his cousin. When Blake Sr. demanded the junior marry, Blake couldn't select from his normal circle. He thought of Lutra Schoenmaker. He journeyed to the school to find what he expected to be a budding rose. Instead, he found a flower in full bloom and won her hand. They were married on the fifth day and returned directly to New York in his father's house. My father was very ill, Blake explained, but when he saw Lutra, he opened his arms, welcomed her to his breast as he had never done to me. I sent her from the room. I was furious, jealous that my father gave the stranger what he would never give me, angry that he forced me to throw aside the woman I loved. I demanded the blessing my father promised me since I married a woman I did not love. Blake stroked the silk cloth. She hadn't fully left. Lutra heard everything. Every sentence my mouth spoke made it worse. She stated her intention to leave my house. She would only return if and when I decided I wanted her as my wife. Until then, she would not press her claim. As soon as she said she was leaving, I knew I'd been wrong. My father fainted and I couldn't leave him. I sent Mrs. Daniels after her. I told her to stop my wife from leaving, but she couldn't. She didn't. Blake brought the silk to his face and inhaled her son. I have not seen my bride since my wedding day. I painted the portrait, hiding her by day and having her with me each night. A gasp brought our attention to Mrs. Daniels, who was now standing in the doorway. Blake climbed to his feet, the dress in his hand. Who was this seamstress? Tears filled Mrs. Daniels' eye. Your wife, Lutra Blake, she told him. Then she looked at us. Have you found her? Possibly, Grace said, then recounted my surveilling Blake's activities. I expected Blake to be outraged as men of his position can be. To my surprise, he was grateful. The girl you saw me speak with, he said, was not Lutra. Her hair was so similar, I asked if she knew others with the same color. She said she did not and ran off. She turned to Mrs. Daniels. You should have told me. I couldn't, Mrs. Daniels said, tears running down her face. She made me promise. She loves you so much, she wanted to be close to you, but she forbade me from saying anything until you wanted her home. I've been looking for her for months, Blake said. How could I not have noticed her? The wig, Mrs. Daniels said. It changed her look completely. I wish I'd known, Mr. Blake. I just wish. What trinkets did she take with her, I asked. Mrs. Daniels continued to look at her employer, her wedding ring, and a picture of you. Blake dropped his head into his hands. Grice cleared his throat, commanding the room. If Lutra Blake is not the girl in the morgue, where is she? All right, this is the point in the story where we pause. Now you know as much as Grice and I know, 
Well, as much as I know, with Grice you can never be sure. I, I suspect he has some stuff he's not telling us. But the questions to all of you are, who kidnapped Lutra Blake and why? And where is she now? Mr. Piano Man, will you play us a little bit of a tune while people think about it before everyone joins Grice and I back at the precinct? Chapter 6, Rescuing Lutra. Grice flipped a telegram across the desk at me. Here we have two seemingly unrelated events, the mysterious disappearance of Lutra, Schoenmacher, Blake, and the Schoenmachers, father and son, being on the lam. Add to it, the pair have left the north and are now thought to be down here. Men are being gathered now. I'll send some to the German neighborhood. It's an obvious choice, I said respectfully, and that's why I doubt they'll be found there. The price on their head is more than some make in a year. Add to that the way Germans love to gossip. I shook my head. They would be found out within days, and they know it. You have a point, Grace conceded. Where would you go? Maybe across the river? Somewhere where my fame did not precede me? Hoboken? Grace considered and then nodded. We'll send a man. Tell me, Quinn. How does your plan change if you connect Mrs. Blake and to her notorious family? extrapolating the idea, I said. The Schumachers were in Mrs. Blake's room. They demanded she come with them, threatening violence, showing they meant it. Mrs. Blake left rather than calling out for help. Who would have come? Certainly the elderly Mrs. Daniels, perhaps Fanny. Neither could have stopped her family. Both men are just brutes, and both would have likely injured the women. Mrs. Blake took her time to collect her wedding ring, Mr. Blake's photo, and her coat. She did not take her day clothing or her brushes. What does that tell us, Grace asked. Her time was limited, I said. She took the things most precious to her. Exactly, Grace said. She left because it was necessary to protect those she cared about, not because she shared her family's criminal nature. One thing I find puzzling is that nothing else was missing from the house. Here are two notorious robbers in the home of one of the richest men in New York, and nothing was taken. Yes, I've said, we've been through the house. It's a thief's paradise. I doubt being on the run changed their disposition. Agree, no thief ignores his nature for long. Grice steepled his fingers in thought. What if they are not finished, but in the middle of a robbery? Thieves can spend months planning a job, I said. With the knowledge Mrs. Blake has of the house, it could be a bigger haul than even the Rudyard Bank. But then, where are they? Someplace close. To Blake, Grace said. They will want to watch the house and monitor the household and deduce habits. I've been across the street for days, I said. I know the names of the families on either side of him and many on the street. Where could they hide? That is for you to find out, Grace said. Stay on the house. Sooner or later, the Schoenmakers will return. With my orders, I returned to the rooming house. Lost in the puzzle of where the Schoenmakers and Mr. Blake could be, I wasn't paying attention and I climbed to the third floor. Something crushed under my boot, pulling me from my daze. I knelt and found red chalk round in the rug. An odd thing to find. I raised my head and found myself eye to eye with a crude cross marked on a door. I had seen nearly an identical mark in the Schoenmakers' Vermont home. Composing myself, I swept the chalk into my hand and returned to the main level. I found the landlady in the kitchen and asked about the occupants above me. A man and his son and his daughter are in the room, she said. I apologize if they are disturbing you. They keep the oddest times. The father and son do. The girl never leaves the house. They watch her something fierce. What does she look like, I asked. Pretty thing, landlady said. Tall and slight with the most beautiful hair. It's all roses and gold. I brought the landlady into my confidence, revealing that I was not an unemployed clerk. In whispered conversation, I helped her through the shock, and then, to my delight, into interest. I proposed to take the room next to theirs, and she agreed, at no extra cost. 
I developed a plan to free Mrs. Blake and capture the Schoenmachers. Grace supported me, acquiring items I requested. We agreed we should not tell Mr. Blake of his wife's location. The last thing we needed was a proud man making a noble gesture. I stayed awake that night, listening to the sounds above me, straining to hear voices. I couldn't hear anything. What I did hear was someone leaving around midnight and returning an hour later. The next day, I moved upstairs, dressed as a French artist I once knew. He always had a wretched cough, and so I assumed that, too. I was in the hallway when a gruff, angry voice came from behind the door in question. The door opened and a woman stepped out. It was her, and shabbily dressed as she was, she was breathtaking. Excuse me, sir, she said softly. Do you need help? No, mademoiselle, I said, imitating my friend. It is just the winter. Pardon if I disturbed you. Oh, you poor thing, she said, sympathy in her dark eyes. I will warn you that my father and brother are cross. Don't be surprised if they are sharp with you. I will think nothing of it. Merci for your concern. I went into the next room, certainly that Hanyon Blake was an idiot. A few days passed, during which I chronicled the movements of the father and brother. They were as dependable as a clock. The son went out at eleven, returning before one. The father went out twelve hours later. My cough brought Mrs. Blake to the door frequently, and we developed something of a friendship. The Red Cross would appear and disappear from the door, acting as some sort of signal between the father and son. Mrs. Blake was never alone, but did have some freedom to move about the floor. On the fourth day, my landlady brought me a note I had requested Grice have fabricated. I knocked on Mrs. Blake's door. The men with her ro roared with displeasure, but she was as gentle as always when she opened the door. Mademoiselle, I said, can you please read this letter from my friend? My eyes are too old to read. Oh, of course, she said. Her brother appeared over her shoulder and snatched the letter out of her hand. It's in French. Of course it is, she said. You wouldn't write to father in English. He is French, so the letter is in French. Please, I said, read. She did. Well, I did not know exactly what was written. It was to say that in four hours we would come for her. Her eyes widened and her voice broke as she read. Her brother became suspicious. Wonderful, I shouted in exuberance, creating time for Mrs. Blake to recover. It is the news I hope for. My friend is coming with money to pay my rent. Thank you, dear lady. Her brother sneered at me as though I was a bug unworthy of the time he'd given me. Without a word, he receded into the room. I left her and returned to my room, leaving the door ajar. Standing watch, I waited for Mrs. Blake. A half hour later, she appeared in the hall. I opened my door and pressed a note of my own into her hand. It directed her to leave her room precisely at noon, wearing two skirts and with a shawl over her head. She was to go to the, clo to the closet at the end of the hall, leave the skirt and shawl, and then go to another room. Her father and brother would be taken into custody. She read the note and then handed it back, nodding once. I tore up the note as I withdrew into my room. At ten minutes to noon, I sent the landlady into the unoccupied room, the one Mrs. Blake would end up in. At noon, the door next to mine opened. A few seconds later, another door closed. Then there was a knock at my door and the landlady calling out the name of my alias. I opened it and accepted the parcel she held out. Quickly, I dressed in Mrs. Blake's skirt and covered myself with her shawl. I left my room for the next door, noticing the red cross on the door. I entered the Schoenmacher room, covering my face. Oh, her father was a mountain of a man. He sat facing the door, not commenting when I entered. I went to a chair facing the window. I had minutes to pull his attention from the door. Grice and four of our strongest officers were moving into position. A brush of sound came from the hallway, drawing the older man's attention. I gasped and came to my feet, pointing out the window. What is it? He said, coming to my side. I pointed to the house across the street, holding his attention as Grice entered with the men. It took all of them to subdue Schoenmacher. He ran it and raved against his daughter. That is me. He leaned close to my ear. Erase the mark, he said. If you know what's good for you, you'll do it. I hadn't turned. He thought it was Mrs. Blake sitting so disinterestedly while he was wrestled to the ground. Schoenmacher was pulled into the bedroom Mrs. Blake used, and the scene was reset for the, for the brother. The younger Schoenmacher was returning late. As minutes passed, I became concerned that he knew something was wrong. Another 20 minutes passed before the door opened. Where is father, he asked. I waved my hand as I imagined a lady did. 
what's wrong with you? He asked, coming up behind me. Again, I stood and gasped, and this time pointing down to the street. He hurried to my side. Two officers set upon him, but he fought like a lion. He whipped around a cane he carried, bringing it down on my head and putting me out. I came to with Grice examining my head. Easy, he said. He rung your bell good. That fact I figured out as soon as I opened my eyes. Grice helped me into a chair as Mr. Blake appeared in the doorway in a controlled rage. Grice greeted him and introduced him to our prisoners. The younger Schoenmacher sneered. Good afternoon, brother-in-law. There will be none of that, Grice said. He pulled a silver ring from his pocket, the same one I had recovered from the potbelly stove in Vermont. Do you know what this is, he asked. The men's eyes betrayed them. They both recognized it. This is a ticket to the gallows, Grice said. This is the way things will go. You will return to prison and complete your sentence. You will say nothing about Lutra Blake. If we hear one word on the street about Mrs. Blake's history, new child charges will be filed faster than you can blink. If you keep quiet, do your time, Mr. Blake will deliver a sum of money each year that will be yours when you get out. Blake nodded and named a figure that was more than reasonable. Again, Grace said, one word of Lutra's identity and the money is gone, as is your lives. When the deal was brokered, Blake turned to Grice. Where is my wife? Chapter 7. A Wrong Put Right Mr. Blake was escorted into a room where his wife waited. The reunion was not the happy occasion I expected, nor by the look on his face what Blake expected. Despite his apology for his regrettable behavior and declarations of love and admiration, she turned away from him. His wife, shamed by the sins of her family, would not accept his claim on her. It seemed she loved him too much to connect her name to his. For all of Blake's logical reasoning, his young wife was not persuaded. In a sign of desperation, Mr. Blake asked for Mrs. Daniels, hoping she could change the girl's mind. As her father and brother were marched down the hallway, Mrs. Blake buried her face in her hands. Her husband paced around her protectively, but did not touch her. Bryce entered the room and, with a nod, signaled to me to begin. Mrs. Blake, I said, could you explain what happened the night you left? Of course, she answered, her voice teetering between strong and tearful. I had run an errand for Mrs. Daniels a few days earlier. My brother saw me. Even with my wig on, he recognized me and followed me home. He said it took them days to manage to steal the gate key. They used the ladder and came in through the window. It was good luck they entered my room and not Mrs. Daniels. They thought I was in service, because I was. They wanted to rob the house. In my distress, I made a mistake. I said I would not allow them to steal from my husband. Deeply sad, tears trailed over her cheeks. Leaving was the only way to stop them. I was afraid they would hurt Mrs. Mr. Mrs. Daniels or Fanny or you. She lifted her eyes to Blake. They were always free with their hands, but like that night, this felt different. The blood, Blake said, his hands flexing as if, they're, as, as if they needed to touch his wife. Did they cut you? I did it, she said, pulling up her sleeve. Her forearm held a long cut, raised and red, but healing. I had to show them I was serious, just like when I burned the money. I climbed out the window and down the ladder. I grew up wild, so it wasn't a problem. That night, we stayed at an inn. They plotted to rob you again. I refused to help, and so they kept me prisoner. My brother returned to Vermont. He had to get the money they buried in the cellar. My father and I moved into the rooming house. Mrs. Daniel stepped into the doorway and then threw decorum out the window by taking the taller woman in her arms. She pulled back then, looking over Mrs. Blake like a, mo a mother hen. Are you hurt? Are you well? I am, Mrs. Blake said, her voice at odds with her statement. Mrs. Daniels, I'm hoping you can help my wife see the wisdom of taking me as her husband. Mr. Blake's voice said that the man was not as calm as his outer appearance. All is fixed with her father and brother. We will never hear from them again. She is, once and for all, free. Mrs. Blake shook her head. The name Schumacher must never be connected to that of Blake. It will cause him irreparable harm to be with me, she said, looking at Mrs. Daniels. I can bear a lot. I was born into hardship, but I cannot bear to be the reason he falls. 
Mrs. Daniels stood between the two, a man who is now pulling at his hair, a woman who is drowning in despair. I am irreparably damaged without you, Blake argued. I am an empty shell of a man moving through the world but not of it. I am nothing without you. Mrs. Blake sniffled, her voice a whisper. That is not true. It is true, Mrs. Daniels said. She pulled a folded sheet of paper from her apron. You should read this first. Blake took the paper and unfolded it. This is my father's handwriting. It's, it's his will. He staggered as he read, the color draining from his face. Finally, he looked at his wife. He named you as his heir. Everything. All of it is yours. What? Mrs. Blake shrieked, grabbing the letter and reading it. Why would he do that? Blake took her hand. Because in the five minutes he knew you, he saw what took me a year to figure out. My brave, intelligent Lutra. I don't have a home to give you or money for silk gowns you deserve, but I love you. He sank to one knee. Marry me? Again? Mrs. Blake blinked like she wasn't sure what she saw. Then she tore the will into pieces and fell into her husband's arms. I love you, she said. I want to go home. That was the way the case wrapped up. I have a few notes for you. I was awarded the money for the rest of the Schoenmakers. I shared it with the landlady who fainted when she saw the size of the check. I still see Fanny, who urged me to use the reward to buy a house of my own. We're negotiating the terms. The Countess de Merak threw a wedding reception for Mr. and Mrs. Blake. I attended and we had a splendid time. The lady expertly navigated the question of her cousin's wife, adding to Mrs. Blake's welcome to society. The whack upon my head by the brother still aches from time to time, especially when it rains. And Grace and I took on the case of the girl pulled from the Hudson, the one we thought was Mrs. Blake. It was a lusty drunk of a neighbor that ended the girl. A gift from Mr. and Mrs. Blake saved the younger sister from the same fate. I paid for the headstone, hoping the girl would find the peace in heaven she was denied on earth. What'd you think of that story, Jack? It happened. (laughs) Well, I liked it a lot. Wait, wait, wait. Don't start playing the outro yet. I gotta talk. The mystery was well-crafted. Of course, I always find little things to pick on. In the original story, the Schoenmachers break into Blake's house to rob it, having no idea that Lutra lived there or that it was her bedroom. I didn't like that the mystery started out with a coincidence, so I altered that and said that they saw her out. And the timetable after Lutra disappears is a little confusing as to how many days pass. The length of time it took to travel to Vermont, both by Quinn, Blake, and then the brother, seemed too much for the event sequence in New York. The only relevant part to the story was Quinn finding the ring, so it wasn't worth trying to figure out the timeline. Speaking of the ring, Quinn found it in the stove, and it's not fully explained. Originally, I thought it was Lutra's wedding ring. They never said what happened to it after she left, so it seemed possible. But, quote, during the deal, Grice and Quinn say that the ring could have sent the Schoenmachers to the gallows, and that made me think, well, it couldn't have been Lutra's wing. ring. In the adaptation, I made a less expensive ring that Blake would have given his wife and created a connection to the Schoenmachers' escape, which would earn them the gallows. And for somebody born and raised in New York and schooled in Vermont, like Miss Green was, I was kind of surprised that there wasn't more woven in the story about temperature or clothing or weather. It had to be cold while Blake and Quinn were running around the story. And finally, the ending lines with Quinn and Fanny, the reward, and the young drowned woman, those were my own addition. Those were loose ends not tied up in the original. I suppose in the late 1800s, the better odds were the woman's death would not have been solved, but I wanted better for her. It's okay, it's called creative license. I think I'm going to put Anna Green on my to-be-read list. I really like Bryce and Quinn, and I'd like to read some more of her stories. Maybe we'll even feature her in some future episodes. Who knows? Well, that wraps up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. So no, course, no, it doesn't. It doesn't wrap it up. Oh, no? No? Didn't you want to do a thing? What did I want to do? Uh, a, a little get a call out, shout out, whatever that oh, was. Oh, yeah. So the most fun thing happened this week. I was traveling in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I met a woman at a hotel. Her name was Anna, and she is the first person that I have met in my real life that had our podcast on her playbill without being somebody who is like related to us. Uh, so Anna, you made my day. 
Anna is studying to be a radiologist and uh, not radiology, a radi, whatever, a tech. And she's just one of those people who, within 10 minutes of talking to you, know is infinitely interesting and is going to succeed at whatever she does. So, Anna, thank you for listening and uh, really enjoyed our chat. Now we're ready to wrap up. So that wraps this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by telling a mystery lover about us and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by me, T.G. Wolf, with contribution from Jack Wolf. In Plain Sight was written by T.G. Wolf, adapted from A Strange Disappearance by Anna Catherine Green. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Join us in two weeks for Episode 8, Poetic Dissonance, an adaptation of Mademoiselle de Scudery by E.T.A. Hoffman. All right, Jack, take us out. Beautiful.